Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 20, Final Fantasy VII, podcast eight. This, this time we're on the way um, to Costa del Sol from Junon, and then from there on to North Corral. And Wesley Chance actually got sort of hoodwinked by one of the sort of charming slash frustrating features of this game by um, sort of playing out a quest and getting a lot farther along than I did because there's just no save point in sight. Uh, once you get towards the um, the golden saucer, actually, yeah, uh, yeah Wes, yeah. welcome back, Mister West. The chance. Sorry. Hey, man. No, no worries. No, I, 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 there is a, there is one in sight. It's in the background of the, uh, the, the sort of atrium of the golden saucer, but you can't use it without spending some GP, and you have no GP, and you don't get any GP if you just sort of go along with the, the story at this point. So. I'm, uh, yeah, it took me a while to, to get to a safe point. I did eventually get to one. What is that feeling like? Because that's something that we've been talking about, the sort of emotions of playing the games, like the side quests and the small uh, ticky-tack uh, requirements that the game will have you do, like having to punch a button at the same time as another character <laughs> and not having yeah. a lot of time to practice that or having to master doing a squat, which requires like a three-button combination. Yeah, but like when it when the game takes your time like that, that is sort of rough, and it does yeah. it does sort of do that and forces forces you to have to alter your schedule, especially now as an adult. Yeah, this is something we should talk at more length about next time once you get there, so you can share your impressions as well. Because there's a couple really interesting things that kind of go along those lines. Like you meet Kate Sith, and he. He joins your party whether you want him to or not. <laughs> like it's like dr dramatizing that exact experience that you have of not being able to save the game, of being caught by the game. And then another image that springs to mind is as you're cast down into the uh, the prison down at the bottom of Golden Saucer in the desert. You're pinned by this um, this kind of machine thing, and so it's it's like again, sort of giving you an image for what the game has done to you for the past half hour or so, maybe of you having to like go around golden saucer trying to figure out where you can save the game if if that's on your mind i don't know maybe you're maybe you're captivated by this portion of the game and you're not thinking about that but yeah for me at least at this point in you know playing it again and it was a little bit frustrating i guess yeah well and i well i'll, I'll certainly share my impressions when i get to that point because I, I i seem to recall that i'm sometimes easier to frustrate than you are and so i'll, I'll definitely be forced to think about my emotions there. So we had some major moments that happened and that we prefigured by speaking about last time where we saw Sephiroth, but he, he floated up through a floor and then he shot through us laterally and then up like a superhero and in a, with a flash of green and mm -hmm. then leaves Genova, which is this sort of, this uh, deformed figure of the feminine with purple and dark blue hues and that one tentacle so it's asymmetrical with sort of a mm -hmm. woman's head there and sort of a sort of a corrupting alien feminine influence um and sephiroth has himself fairly feminine in appearance with his long silver hair and his his long elegant trench coat so like a gown and his yeah. sort of slender figure yeah that's i mean I guess I would say androgynous more than feminine, yes. but yes. but yeah, I see what you're saying. And I thought that the presentation of the Genova figure within the fight scene was kind of interesting too, because it in a way it mirrors the way that the um, the sea monster 
that that you fought down at uh, the beach looked because it's like above you, it's high up, and and she um, she shoots lasers down at you. Um, so there's this kind of like verticality to the fight. Uh, although I don't think I don't remember now, but can you reach her without long range weapons? I I think you can. I think you uh, can. And yeah. did you notice where her lasers were directed at on your anatomy, your character's no. anatomy? <clears throat> now, I don't know if I can substantiate this, but I <laughs> seem to recall that they they were aimed at your head. Uh-huh. And if if they were aimed at your head, I could see how she represents their anomalous information that tries to break your world map apart by hmm. introducing something catastrophic like meteor into your world map um and so that that's that's actually what happened to sephiroth right that mm -hmm. piece of anomalous information about genova which wasn't even true necessarily blew apart his image of himself and created a new image in which she was the positive mother rather than what she obviously is which is the negative mother that blows people's maps apart yeah, um, the, the laser shooting dragon tentacle. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. The snake in the garden that poisons the garden. The snake in the garden that bites Eurydice's heel. The snake mm -hmm. in the garden that becomes the the dragon of revelation. Um, mm. That she, yes, precisely. She is. She is. Um, she is that which you know the the single diseased molecule that makes it in to the, the camp and spreads the plague. And I think and I think what Sephiroth represents and what Cloud represents are the, the two paths one can take when presented with this information that can potentially shatter your 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 world map or your story and thus your character and thus your mind, right? Your integrity, your personality. And Sephiroth, yeah. you know, he identifies what yeah, go on. Yeah. I've well, yeah, because he seems kind of crazy at this point, right? Um, right? This is the first you actually, you know, see him face to face in present time, not the flashback, and he is uh, kind of off off his rocker, right? And um, floating through walls and flying around and shooting green blasts of of light, and and he doesn't, you know, talk to you. He he doesn't rationally. Um, engage with you he just flies past you and and you you fight this deformed version of Genova yeah it's bizarre yeah and uh, along those lines something we were talking about before on the pre-show was that um uh, sorry sorry I'm, lo I'm losing it um even though that was such a nice setup for it too um was who are you isn't that what he yes, said yeah exactly so so it's easy to get caught up in the fact that uh, Sephiroth has this sort of negative messianic aspect now. And what he brings is like this message of this deformed Genova thing. And that's not a message that is a very pretty sight. That's not a message really for you or for anybody. You, you see it for what it is, apparently. And it's mm -hmm. sort of gnarly. Perhaps he is the one who does not see it for what it is. But he's, asked, he's, he's acting like he's out of his mind. So it might be easy to ignore the first bit of the exchange between Cloud and him, but Cloud says Sephiroth, and you would expect from how Cloud has been talking about Sephiroth, that they had this deep, meaningful bond, especially given that story that he gave um, in the, fourth, the first city after Midgar. Um, mm -hmm. Calm. Calm. Uh, mm -hmm. That they, 
that this would be like sort of a climactic moment, even though Sephiroth would obviously be far too strong for him in current form as he currently is, but he's walking the path of the hero here. But, um, but Sephiroth says, who are you? Yeah. And I think having played the game before and sort of understanding or at least knowing the twist that's going to come, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's legitimate. Who yeah. are you? Um, yeah, what did you, did you, what do you think? Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Sure, sure. But, just, but just the, the immediate effect of that is like really interesting because yeah, you've built up your relationship with Sephiroth so much that, that his cloud has um, his relationship with, with Sephiroth so much, but you see how easy it is to sort of like put yourself in cloud's place. Right. And so when you, when you finally encounter this, this godlike uh, being and he doesn't recognize you, at all that's like really uh that's really as off-putting as any uh laser to the head right so that that's and and the battle itself the music that plays during it is like you know cool and techno and and real creepy um and so it's like this this kind of cathartic thing to actually get to fight something now that sephiroth has flown past without even bothering to speak to you you know Right, and, and you have also been suffering from sort of de-individuation or incapacity of identifying with the image of the hero because in the cargo ship, you're again, mm -hmm. you're again in that Shinra uniform. Yeah. De-individuated, your, your individuality is taken away. You drop right back in the line and you just, you just watch Heidegger and Rufus do their thing without doing anything yourself. I love how I love how the different characters like you can tell who they are by the way they talk um, as you walk around the ship like practically everyone you can talk to and interact with is one of your party um, and each of them is a little like has a little tell and some are really obvious right like Barrett in his little sailor outfit um, like is, is clearly comic relief at that point uh, peering through the window at Rufus and Heidegger uh, and Red 13 you know like walking on hind legs Wally, uh, yeah. says says how great he is at like passing as human which i thought was hilarious um but also um if you have yuffie she's down in the bottom of the ship um throwing up and is blocking the way to that all materia that's sitting there oh so you can't actually get to it until you know stuff starts going wrong on board ship and um she joins your party again you know like you can actually have her as one of the members in your party um but yeah i think yeah, it's really interesting how you've you've played through this this pretty long portion of the game now, where you're wearing the soldier outfit, and now your whole party is wearing soldier slash sailor outfits. Uh, and then again, when you finally get to fight, though, right? When you finally get to like do something active, uh, you you look again just like you always did. Um, and so in some way, it's like I think I'm getting the sense from the game that um, fighting is is kind of a a way of showing what defines you and what what does make you the individual that you actually are. Um, so it's kind of ironic that the soldier outfit is is what you wear to disguise yourself, right? Yeah, and the fight. I mean, if the fight represents and like all the many fights in an RPG represent you coming up against anomalous information and yeah. with your yeah. with your party or your friends, and you like sort of strategizing and actually implementing a solution to the problem and thus expelling the the anomalous information and integrating the like say items and money and experience you get from each victory right. yourself, then it strikes me that each, each fight is you 
like honing the logos within yourself as well as your bond with others as well as personally enriching yourself as well as actually uh, experientially enriching yourself right uh, your your skills get greater as well um it, and so it, it breeds new consciousness in yourself getting through each of these battles and it brings out new aspects of yourself and new with the necessity for greater strategy with mm -hmm. these boss battles too right like people take on functions like you you might have a healer in your right. at this point and even though this game and particularly final fantasy 7 in contrast to the ones before seems to try and eschew or get rid of the um the type system or the cast system the class mm -hmm. system there we are there it is yeah but but types do emerge as totally. well like cloud is clearly like the knight and and uh well at least red 13 for me with his good magic is like our healer right now or aries mm -hmm. is the prototypical healer yeah um, uh the types even without defining people simply by type and putting their individuality first which seems to be what we do in final fantasy 7 mm -hmm. types and characteristic uh features emerge yeah i like the way that certain things like it's up to you how you want to to form those though right like right. you you place it's 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 tiered as well and this starts to become more of a strategic thing like you're saying at this point you have enough different weapons armor characters that you can actually start to think through like how you want to optimize your party and for what purpose and um you can use things that have double materia growth if you found or got gotten some of those at this point and so you can like focus on leveling up some certain material or you can try to focus on like spreading out the um, ability growth across as many materials as possible and just like have a, a well-rounded set of, uh, of spells at your disposal. You can opt to uh, put um, steel, you know, on one of your characters and use it to actually steal stuff. Or you can just put it on someone because it gives you a stat boost and no stat reduction as most materia does so like you you not really care about stealing the items at this point but you just want to have that that slight stat boost that comes with wearing the materia um and one of the things about the uh the cargo ship is that you can uh you can steal a uh, a bangle uh called shinra beta an armor from the uh from the marines on there and um and it is i think it's like four slots um but it's like pretty weak, you know. It's as as far as actual defense stats go. Uh, it might even lower your your stats from what you're wearing at the time. But you can sort of like take that um, that good with the bad, you know. That it gives you those extra slots to use, and so you know, it's just it's interesting that that um, that's another example of you taking on the persona of the enemy though right it's like that's part of the uh, soldier outfit that you can actually keep wearing it won't show up visually but it will have an effect on your um your your, your character uh in the battle so and i just think it's, it's cool it's cool yeah yeah and that that just makes me want to make a comment on the meta the meta situation with the, the video game that not only is your character being enriched by experience and the differentiated problems they have to solve in combat against new enemies which they receive varying levels of skill and experience from but yeah. so are you as a person controlling your character having to work out more and more sophisticated solutions and put more and more and invest invest more and more time 
into a more sophisticated level of play as you progress through the game. The battles will actually require that you master the skills and the materia and the fighting system to a much higher degree and a, a far more nuanced degree than when you first start and you just are banging the buttons fast. Right. Um, and that, that just ties into a conversation we had off the mic after we finished recording yesterday, typically. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, always, it's always right after you get off the mic that the best stuff starts to flow. Um, but we were talking about the sort of comment of Ready Player One and also of Westworld, that, and, which is also a constructivist Piagetian point about consciousness, which, and Kierkegaard seems to agree with this too when he said that he set out to create problems rather than solutions for things, like an anti-engineer. But what seems to produce the, the highest pitch of consciousness is the most sophisticated problem that requires the development of the most amount of skills necessary in order to harness a consciousness uh, that can that can then wield those skills in the the pursuit of solving this labyrinth or this game of mm. ultimate sophistication, and that um, sort of the point of becoming a game master, as Piaget would say it, this Ready Player One implicitly says it, of being the person who like sort of beats the game is you then have to take on the figure of sort of um, God the Father and God the Son, or sort of Horus and Osiris, the the old king rejuvenated by the Logos, and create the new version of the game that's even more sophisticated than the former game that you got through. Um, the path out of the cave for Plato has to be more sophisticated to produce an even uh, better class of thinker after mm-hmm. you. And I, I think that that's sort of a large disagreement we have with like contemporary scholars that in fact, where we are in history, the best class of thinker that has ever existed should be produced. Um, almost a Hegelian argument, except for, except for you know, based on data now, not a conception of this world spirit. Um, <laughs> uh, but that uh, it's not as if like philosophy ended with Hegel. It's like we can do a lot more thinking and get a lot more answers to a lot more problems now than we ever have. And I think that's the whole point to be answering the problems of the day. And yeah. that's yeah it's well it's interesting that the way that the game is structured it seems to to mirror that right like any video game you start out at low levels you fight enemies who are at low levels and then as you progress you're scaling that mountain like like you said in our discussion in in the raven right like that's the game teaching you in a way and and to the to the point about like ready player one it, it does it does sort of um take it outside of the game at that point and say like okay how how do we how do we pass this thing on to the next generation well it's going to go to the person who masters the game and that seems to be the point at which final fantasy and and a lot of the more conventional rpgs kind of stop like they don't they don't think about the next thing because i think that's part of what the meaning of the the title if it has a meaning final fantasy like you you stop at the end of the game. There isn't that that further step, except insofar as you, the player, think about it carefully enough, or like, you know, maybe twenty years later, start to think about, wait a minute, like, what did I learn from playing this game? And then it suddenly dawns on you that yeah, the, the, there is a, this kind of bigger, um, yeah, meta thing going on um, as you're playing the game, where you are actually um, honing your your critical thinking ability, or at least your ability to think about things from a different perspective. 
And I, I would like to make this comment too. I, I mean, especially as we attempt to become, uh, you know, invited panelists to NorwestCon, that um, part of the magic of this sort of video game is precisely the time at which you play it in your life. If it's during an imprinting phase, as it was with us during like our 13, 14 years, our seventh and eighth and ninth grades, then the impact this game is going to have on forming our character by our story identifying and imitating the story of this game and thus problem solving in the service of pursuing this narrative so that we can continue to imitate it, it's going to be far more profound than the impact this game is going to have on us when we're in our 30s. Absolutely. Again, because it's no longer forming us in the same way. We are far more formed. We're far more nuanced. Uh, just use that word a million times today. <laughs> but um, we, we really are. And it, it's, I don't think that anything will ever have the same sort of wedding or like holy marriage impact on us as the stories that we learned in our adolescence and early childhood. And that is part of why we are going back to analyze them now. And then, yeah. yeah. I think that's a really interesting problem in its own right, isn't it? Like the problem, at least for me then becomes, so as a teacher, teaching kids who are at that age, and I'm sure like Oscar has a lot of thoughts on this too, if, he can be found and dredged back up to talk on the podcast, right? Like, then, then you have like a really important responsibility insofar as you're able to shape, guide, mentor kids who are at that age, right? And sort of like put in their way the sorts of obstacles, the sorts of challenges, the sorts of helps, if that's what they need, to, to really um, imprint the, the best possible stuff that they need to get at that point. Right, and not miss out on on some great experiences. Right. I mean, I mean, I I think that that's the problem with the education system right now. I mean, I was having this conversation earlier just while walking my girlfriend's dog. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I get into this everywhere I go. But the 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 purpose the purpose of education is to produce uh, people capable of wielding free speech, which means they have the capacity to think freely, uh, and, and which means they've mastered the liberal arts, um, which can be done through a progressive, uh, work, progressively working through the Western tradition. And, uh, and then one is prepared to be in a democracy where one worships the, the logos, which means not a king or an embodiment, of that which rules, but the the spark of consciousness and individuality within each individual, each free person, and that's uh, I I know I went probably way off track with that, but that's what I think is sort of missing from these um, these sort of partisan ideological discussions in education, mm -hmm. and it. it because the whole point is to build the character of individuals that you would like to be around who are then trustworthy and capable by putting these mountains in front of them, just like these video games represent. And so yeah. education is supposed to be hard and uncomfortable and, and extremely difficult and sophisticated. It's supposed to be, 
you would want the people around you to have overcome the largest possible mountain. And that's what we should strive to provide uh, at all levels of education, in, including that ver those very important uh, adolescent years. Okay, mm -hmm. there we go. I got it back. There it is. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I would be really fascinated to like uh, teach this game as, as a text basically. Right. Like, right. And that's, I, I know it's like a, it's kind of a weird thing to say that that would be difficult in some way or like challenging to the students in the, in the way we're talking about, but, uh, but it totally, it totally would give a fodder for, for great discussions, I think for them. And, uh, I just I think it would be so fun to to experiment with that at some point. Like you're saying, we're trying to find different avenues to to go with these projects. But um, finding a school that wants to teach video games in a liberal arts fashion that's that's definitely high on my list personally. Yeah, I would love to teach this in uh, this game in any way. Um, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think harnessing the technology of today in order to build character and the critical thinking skills that are so often mentioned in booklets and in conversations but in a legitimate fashion with a legitimate a legitimate tool a helpful tool a very provocative tool i think would be very very good i mean using tools like harry potter and final fantasy 7 i know that there are some who will say oh man those are not on the great books curriculum and that's true but there's a certain gravity to the to these works there's a certain power to them that that means that they have a certain sort of impact in the fifth dimension, which I would define as like the sort of meaning dimension, the value dimension. It's like they, they touch people's souls and, and they were made during our time and they draw us together. They, these are stories that most people know and are on TV are actually being broadcast into space and into people's homes at pretty much all times. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so I think engaging with, uh, do, do reverence, but also do criticality with these, these works is appropriate because these are the, the living lightning bolt like features of narrative divinity that exist mm -hmm. in our culture right now. These are the stories being told around the fire and totally. They are the living stories because they are the stories that the most amount of people know. And thus they are the stories that bequeath the most amount of values or at least share the most amount of values with uh, the people who are reading them because you generally, you, you, you acquire and refine your, your map and values by imitating and embodying the behavior of the the protagonists and the narratives that you read. See um, that that's where I think, particularly with respect to the kind of data, right, that we're able to gather these days. That's where I think this could be a very interesting experiment to actually like try to measure that. Um, and obviously, there's lots of anecdotal things that you can say to the to the argument like these experiences build character in a word, right? But then where, where you would want to gather data about that would be by actually like running the experiment, right? Like teaching a class with these kids, uh, playing this game or reading Harry Potter or, you know, X, Y, Z, but then have some kind of um, writing 
or um, other measure that goes along with it to to assess essentially and like check in with those kids 20 years later and see what they're doing and how big an impact they think the game had on them. And just, I think that would be so interesting. Um, a really long-term kind of experimental approach um, to give some, some data to the, the claims that we're trying to uh, exp experiment with here. Well, you know, funny that you say that because right as you're saying, we should acquire some of this data and produce some of this data that would be so helpful to our understanding of the human condition. Um, we um, we run into Hojo, the chief scientist of Shinra, yes. who seemed to be pretty into his job, and also has a pretty big forehead and also two pretty oblong uh, wisps of black hair that come out and up and then out the and then dangle down in front of him in sort of an insect-like way, sort of like how Sephiroth's hair looks. He's um, yeah, he's like the uh, past his prime Sephiroth, totally. Yeah, and he, uh, we find him on a beach with a couple girls, of all people, and he's willing to talk to you as if you were not the man, like, experimenting with Red 13, trying to get him to either attack or mate with Ares, was it? Um, yeah, yeah. And I guess Costa del Sol is just like, what, New Orleans, some cool place at laissez-faire, let it all go, you know? And what happens in Costa del Sol stays in Costa del Sol. Yeah, what happens in Costa del Sol stays in Costa del Sol, indeed. Yeah, and so so we meet him at, on a mo much more casual level. And so is has he quit Shinra, or is he just on a, a vacation after this horrifying, you know, <laughs> blood-soaked, like, night with terrorists coming through and Genova escaping and death being everywhere i i am i am not sure i don't remember whether he comes back into the game later honestly um it seems like he is uh retirement or maybe just uh a, a serious vacation yeah he does come back into the game because he does end up wanting to help out another character in a fairly nefarious way mm. um, but i i forget the the dynamics under which he comes which is another thing about these games these games are highly complex and the amount of sub stories and side quests like our name here that they have that you have to manage within your mind and and i mean i do seem to recall that there was a legitimate complaint that my friends would have about rpgs that they would forget where they had been if they put the rpg down for a little while and they wouldn't know what to do to keep moving forward that's yeah. like a real uh, sand pit that you could fall into. Yeah, I, I've, um, I've definitely experienced the, uh, something like that where you, you get to a certain point in the game and it's actually like, I lose motivation to keep going. Um, because I know, because I know what I have to do next and I don't want to do it. <laughs> so it's maybe not quite the same thing, but you know, along the same lines. Um, a, a knowledge problem, a a hard uh, hard obstacle that I just don't want to put the um, the necessary time into, or maybe I'm just like afraid that I'm not going to be able to do it, so I just give up. Yeah, yeah, I I I certainly ran into that too, and we know from our old friend Jordan Peterson that that's sort of a prey behavior, right? That mm. when you run into an obstacle, and this again part of the character building aspect of these video games. When you run into an obstacle that 
is so big that it is beyond the range of proximal development or beyond your range of adaptive capacity at that time, you experience a prey response, which is to withdraw, to feel fear or anxiety, or fear first to withdraw, and then to fear, feel anxiety about approaching that threat. And so you have to sort of build up your confidence, right, through like uh, beating smaller, smaller uh, characters by beating these little um, side um, random battle characters so that mm -hmm. you can get past them. But that's, that's only if you happen to be too weak as a character. If you're fighting your own um, sort of capacity or your own um, like waning interest, that's, that's far more difficult. That's sort of part of the metagame because that would be something I, I'd say I ran into with RPGs. I would get to a certain point in them and then sort of the novelty would start to wear off and then I would mm -hmm. want to buy another one. And then I would be all into it because of the novelty factor, but then I wouldn't be progressing past a certain point in any of the games. Ah, now that sounds like, that sounds like something to, to delve into, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, that behavior, that behavior cuts across other areas too, I'm sure. Generalizes, absolutely mm -hmm. generalizes, absolutely. And, I mean, that's a big part of doing this podcast and, like, sticking with it as a teacher for, um, you know, at least five years now. And, um learning how to delve into things at a deeper level. I do think that that's what mastery is, that the deeper you get into some specific aspect of existence, the more, the more refined and, again, sophisticated your perception, uh, the more acute your perception of the subtleties of what's there becomes. You become more conscious, and you, yeah. you have a more focused consciousness, and you're, seeing, you're capable of seeing not only the big picture, but also the most detailed possible picture as well and so your consciousness has maximum extension throughout um a, a space then um and that that's basically what well that that that's what the game seeks to produce and right. yeah um you, you fill up all the little stars and then a little baby materia is born right <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that does seem to be how it, how it works. Like you produce a masterful performance in life by pursuing mastery. And then you hit the star, which means you meld with the story, which means you get thrown into a constellation in the stars, which means you die like Heracles and leave a shade down low. But you also mm. become a god because you become a story, which can then be shared because or you join the chain of heroes the golden chain, the Homeric chain. Mm -hmm. you, you join the chain that gives you immortality through your conjunction within it, um, through not only you mastering due to the efforts of yourself and the masters before you who you've imitated and emulated and embodied and articulated, but also the ones that will come after you because of you, who you've held the light in front of, as it were, in order to guide. And... Um, just to tie that back to the sort of notion that the, the point of the game is for the student to become the master, who then enables the next student to become an even better master. Um, yeah. That seems to be sort of the problem, the, our answer to the, the fact that we're mortal, honestly speaking. Mm -hmm. That's sort of like the production of the, the magical kingdom uh, that you see at the beginning of all Walt Disney movies. That that's the production of, of the kingdom of heaven or the new Jerusalem that 
so long as we are passing on our art or our 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 capability of dealing with more and more sophisticated and difficult problems the 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 better it is for our species i mean i guess that would mm -hmm. be the the great mythology of a species right uh, yeah. keep going and doing better <laughs> it's i think yeah i think that is a uh, uh at least borne out a little bit in the um, the imagery of the game so far. Something I was thinking about with, with respect to this was how much time is spent um, sort of stuck in Midgar, right? I think we've talked about this before. And it, it's clearly like a calcified, tyrannical um, tree, right? The tree that doesn't bear fruit or something like that, right? And and it's it's failing at that larger species-wide mythology, so to speak, uh, until the old king is killed, the new king comes in, and he's very dynamic. And now suddenly, you're on this pace where you pass through town after town uh, very quickly, like maybe a half hour or so spent in each of these new locations, uh, if that. And so it's um, the pacing of the game is very strange in a way, but sort of fitting to to go into the thematic sense of it that you're you're really like now that you're free of the order um that had been like holding you in for so long you've got this powerful uh tension in the bow right like you're moving really quickly uh from place to place and chasing this thing which is um you know super dangerous ghostly haunting right the sephiroth character and you're uh like, I don't know, I spent maybe 15 minutes in Costa del Sol um, compared to those six hours in Midgar. Right. It's almost like how once you've done or faced an anomaly the first time, you've mapped so much of it that you, you then have memory of it that you, you can then progress through that situation much faster the next time you see it. Mm -hmm. So the first time you leave home, it's a big effing deal, like very sad, uh, lots of lots of emotion dysregulated. A lot of behavioral patterns are going to be changed. But the second time you do it, after say you've come home for from college for two or three months, and then you're going off to your sophomore year, it's much less big of a deal, mm. and you can do it with less emotional upheaval. We can do it more efficiently and more like a business. And so that seems to be what's happening with, with Cloud and the, the party, that they're gaining speed, that they're adapting quicker to new situations. Whereas even just getting out of home for the first time seems so impossible. I think we're seeing just how important that first step actually is, that it really is the hardest step. And when Plato and the Laws has his Athenian stranger say, that it's worth more than 50%. It seems true because it's like, we get through calm, we get through, uh, what, Junon, then we mm -hmm. get through Costa del Sol, then we get through uh, North Corral, or I'm to North Corral, where I still wanna talk about Barrett being blamed for everything a little bit, and that, okay. that damn train, um, <laughs> which I do remember from last time, I definitely biffed on, and there was a train in my corral <laughs> for the rest of the game. <laughs> Dang. Um, Dang, I know. I'm going to make sure not to lose that this time around. That's why save points are crucial, right? You get to retry if you do mess it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, so 
I guess there were just a couple more things because this was a short segment. Um, we pass another rate Mako reactor, but we don't really deal with that. We, um, we hear some baby birds chirping when we need to turn a lever. And what, what was the choice you made there, Wes? Did you leave them be or did you fight, did you fight them? I, I said, take the damn treasure. So did I, and I got those 10 Phoenix Downs, and I felt great about it. Nice. And it yeah. doesn't hurt the baby birds, right? They're still chirping away after the battle. They're fine. Yeah, they sound fine. I might have been their mom, might have been their dad, but that's nature what happened. And uh, McDonald's sells a lot of chicken nuggets. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, did, I did really like the, um, the art aesthetic quality of this section of the game yes this time through there's that one bare branched tree up on the hilltop do you remember this as you, you everything's very much like ascent descent in this in this section of the game you you but climb I, up i know it's like high. sunset and you have that really yeah. prosaic long bridge descent and ascent it is sort of poetry in landscape art yeah form yes I, I thought there was something interesting going on with the uh, with the roller coaster area too, right? Because there or the train track, whatever, um, where you you know you you can fall. Well, you you should fall because there's treasure down there. Um, and as you fall, you like flap your wings, so that yes. you're you're um, you're sort of like engaged in this daredevil uh, uh, behavior and and stealing things from baby birds. And it's just like, it's very strange. It's very um, uh, playful, I guess is the word for it, right? Like even the, the art stuff going on with the sun setting and all that, it's, it seems, it strikes me as playful more so than like giving some kind of deep um, thematic heft to, to anything particular. I wonder, because I know that you are sort of a master of Earthbound now, and you talk a lot about Ito sort of poking fun at the player and giving him constant reminders of what he's doing and how should, he should feel. But I wonder to what extent this is sort of a reminder by the game developers to be having fun with this. You're in a different world after all. You're playing a game after all, to not just rush through this. And in fact, each one of the, the sort of, not only are the landscape, uh, are the landscape scenes, uh, actual landscapes, but they're in landscape rather than portrait uh, camera angles too, right? Mm -hmm. That's why landscape's called landscape. They're long, they're long angles. You, you run across the screen forever. They're, right. they're very expansive. And so you get into many, many annoying random battles. And so rather than just breathtakingly taking in all this beauty and being like, man, this is a game that I'm playing that's so fun. It's like annoying because you're getting into all of these battles and you're yeah. not going from, it's not like a city where you're going from one place to another, you're going inside and outside. You're not, you're talking to people and getting information here. Instead, you're getting sort of the information of the outdoors. You're getting into little anomalous scrapes. You're having to deal with them and you're having to right. learn patience. And it's almost like the game saying, you know, take some time to enjoy this portion of the game too. I mean, again, this is part of the game that, that, you know, this is part of what makes the experience that you'll be talking about for the rest of your life. So enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's very interesting too that you um, you don't hear anything from Barrett until you actually get to the town. Also, 
So it's like that, that isn't hanging over your head. But then in hindsight, thinking about it from his perspective, like he's thinking about this every step you take is bringing him closer to this like tragedy that occurred that's like buried in his past. And, um, and he doesn't, he doesn't let, let on about that at all. And so it's like, you're having all this fun. And then suddenly you're like, Oh wait, this is, this is where we are now. This is the, this is the place that this fun has brought us to. So it's, it's a bit jarring, I guess, but, but uh, you know, it also permits you to kind of frolic around on the, uh, the train tracks there. Yeah. So I did want to ask you about that. So it, this, this story is such a story about the things that we carry and the things that people carry that if they were just to share the fact that they suffer with each other, they would have the most powerful bonds possible. And that seems to be a big part of the theme of this story and also sort of the Christian story too, that everybody suffers and thus everybody has the ultimate bond always that they'll just be humble. And, um, but what is it that happens here? So Corel, when we get there, dump, major dump. It's like a crummy little coal mining town mm -hmm. where you don't even know whether you're going to be able to buy anything of use. You immediately stereotype it like that because that's what it looks like. And everybody blames Barrett for some unnamed tragedy. He ruined this place. So he's a ruiner. He's yeah. a place ruiner. <laughs> right. He refuses to say more about it. So Wes, please tell me what he did. <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah. So you're about to get the flashback and, um, and this is part of why I kept going because I didn't want to have to go through the flashback again. Uh, so I didn't just turn the game off. I kept on until I found a save point. But, but yeah, basically you see um, when Shinra came to town, right? And in the flashback, the town is, uh, is maybe, I wouldn't say thriving, but like it looks like Calm or Nibelheim or any of the other uh, peaceful, prosperous town type towns that we see so far. And, uh, and then the Shinra show up, um, I think it's Scarlet, who's in the, um, the house, and they're talking about, you know, should we allow Shinra to come in and build this reactor? There's a, there's a kind of interesting, like, socio-political thing going on with, yeah, this is a mining town, and the mine uh, has been the lifeblood of the town, but this new energy source is around, so, like, maybe we've got to move with the times and bear it, is, uh, is on board with it, but his best friend, Dine, uh, D-Y-N-E, Dine is, um, is very, very against it, right? He says, no, like, we need to stick to the tradition of the town. Our, uh, I think he says something like, our, our, our fathers, you know, shed blood for this, and we can't give it up so easily. So there, there's further backstory that we uh, mercifully don't hear more about just yet. <laughs> so, but anyway, then, um, then he, uh, you know, Barrett persuades his friend, to um to bow to the the will of the rest of the people and like just go along with it it's like this is a a bitter necessity and then sure enough you know like the next next scene cut in um there's just like flames and they're not cool flames like the ones in Nibelheim they're 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 pretty soft uh diaphanous uh veiling flames that are kind of across the front of the screen so i don't know whether they were rushed or whether it was an intentional thing to make it less graphic this time around but you see like townspeople dying and the town's on fire and everyone, I guess, blames Barrett even more than they blame Shinra. I guess, again, like Shinra's energy source is so necessary that they need the scapegoat 
of, of Barrett instead to, uh, to heap their blame upon. So how did it happen? Was it a Shinra accident or did Dine uh, take his revenge? We, we get no further explanation that I recall other than we said yes to Shinra and then the town burned down. Like, I think that's it at this point. Uh, yeah. I don't know what happened to Dine. We don't, we don't see, we don't yet see the, 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 the catastrophic um, uh, train sequence where you have to do something correctly or whatever. It doesn't happen just yet. All right, so I'm seeing elements of Cain and Abel and that eventually leading to Tubal-Cain and implements of war and war, conflict leading to war, and also Achilles and Agamemnon, and conflict mm. between them leading to death and battle for the men that serve them, that are beneath them, and also for the sort of conflict that Paris of Troy uh, presents by stealing the wife of Menelaus and thus bringing the might of the Greek, not even then called Greek people, called Argives, Achaeans, or Danaeans, down on his people that would destroy him, that... It is precisely these small conflicts between people, Dine and Barrett, that become these ultimate, like, divisions or divisive conflicts within communities that then end up making the communities eat themselves or destroy themselves, as Dante would say about medieval Florence. Yeah. Um, and so uh, something interesting, too, and um, uh, I think... Uh, I'm not sure where you'd like to close tonight, but probably um, we're at a pretty good spot as we are. Mm -hmm. But um, of, of the three summons we have right now, one is sort of a, a tricky summon that you happen to get, the Chocobo summon. Yeah. But there, there are two pretty archetypal ones. And so we talked a little bit about Shiva, the first one we get, which is an ice queen who, sh who has a long-range ice attack called Diamond Dust. Well, yeah. now after we defeat Genova, we get Afrit which is about the most aggressive figure of the masculine possible. He's a dark brown sort of Gorgon from the from uh, Zelda-looking uh, uh, creature with horns, two horns, and like a six-pack. And he's on fire and rushes like a linebacker through a quarterback through, <laughs> uh, through the, uh, the enemy. And what is the name of his, his movement? Hellfire. Right. Mm, I think so. I haven't actually used it yet. Like I picked it up, I equipped it. It's gaining experience, but I haven't actually spent the MP to use it yet. And so we have this masculine, physical, raw physical attack. This sort of primitive-looking masculine because it's like it's sort of mm. this figure of Adam, and that he's stronger with sort of aggressive, like horns, like a goat, sort of like a demon as well. Oh yeah. Involves, um, of course, with Hellfire image there. Like he has the appropriate harnessing of the aggression within man, um, and uh, and it's curious to me that that's dropped by the Genova battle. I, I don't know what to make of that, frankly. Right, and the Shiva one, equally curious, is sort of a uh, an Eve-like beautiful woman in that she's she's not wearing much more than a leaf. She's mm. very sensual, sort of. Uh, sort of uh, idealized figure of the feminine. Yeah. Um, whereas Afrid is like this ripped dude. She is like this curvy and buxom and beautiful lady, though of course very much pixelated. Though not so pixelated that you can't see her for what she's supposed to be. And so mm -hmm. you, well, I mean, what do you think it means that these are essentially functionally the first two material that you have? They're fire and ice, they're feminine, they're masculine. 
they're physical and close range, they're, uh, they're sort of magical and long range. Yeah. There are these contrasts between them. It's, uh, yeah, it strikes me that it's, it's very late in the game, actually. It seems like to me that you are just like now starting to get some of these summon material, which are generally like the most powerful spells you're going to have. Um, and that, that they should be a masculine and feminine figure, or rather the other way around, right? The feminine you find first down there in the, the beach and then the masculine on board the ship. Uh, it seems like there's a kind of balance there. Like uh, once you do finally get the first one, the second one comes pretty shortly thereafter to, to balance it out. Um, it sets up a pretty clear uh, hierarchy among the elements, like generally fire spells are a bit stronger than ice spells or like tend to seem that way, at least to me, I don't know. But, um, but so then it's like the, the next one, if I remember right, is going to be the lightning guy. Um, and so it's like, is that Tiamat? I think his name is Rama. Rama. Yeah. I haven't got him yet. I hope I haven't missed him, but, but anyway, um, it's like what starts as a cool individual thing, the feminine, Right, then you pick up the masculine, the fiery one, and there's a kind of balance there. Right, so then there's like the question, okay, so what, what's gonna happen next? Um, are these the only two, right? No, of course not. There's gonna be the further, stronger, um, like the old wise man, I think is what Rama kind of looks like. Um, and so it's like there's these, uh, this series of, of archetypes that's, that's brought in um, and it's funny that the the chocobo, the little animal sort of uh, figure uh, with the moogle, the mog or the moogle or whatever, uh, are riding alongside uh, is is the first one. But yeah, you don't like have to find it. It's pretty obvious, but you might you might miss it. So it's cool. That that is very interesting because it's just uh, to mention the Jungian archetypal sort of phylogenetic growth of consciousness. Yeah. One, one confronts the shadow first in one's life, which is like one's aggression and lust is represented by a freed and partially by Shiva. But then one, if one is male, it confronts like the sort of generalized image of female than one has been imprinted with and is also a characteristic shared with every man who's ever existed as even going down the phylogenetic chain to, you know, male creatures that are not humans <laughs> uh, that we share like, the sexual instinct with right so like to some extent like we can watch like crabs mm -hmm. trying to like chase females and we're like we we understand that crabs uh we get we get where you're coming from <laughs> um uh, right and um so i'm sorry i'm forgetting my point because i'm talking about crabs and i it's it's distracting but i think i mean it is interesting that the the archetypal Oh. sexual libidinous thing going on here is like pretty in your face right like that's of all the things that you might notice to like wonder about as symbols or something or themes like that's pretty that's pretty low-hanging fruit so it's like the game is it's kind of inviting you to try to try to think through that a little bit um well, I, yeah i think to some extent it is also pandering to the sort of adolescent nature oh yeah of, uh, the its customers there but that's also revealing of their sort of level of development that like they have they're so unsophisticated that they'll just stare at images though we do know from the word work of Saigadam and Ogiogas that um, 
you are wired up as a male to respond to particular female visual, uh, physical visual cues. Um, like hip to ideal hip to waist ratio. That's just pre-programmed in. That's not something that a guy chooses. Uh, but the point I was making is that you encounter the shadow first. And then as a male, you encounter the anima like Shiva. And then Mm -hmm. if you can integrate not only your aggression, but also your lust and the principle of connection or Eros as represented by anima through a, a, a monogamous relationship with somebody, which is, you know, it starts off as pure fantasy, right? You're playing the prince, she's the princess, and then you get Mm -hmm. to know each other, realize that each other do things like pass gas and get sick and get angry at times and are very much human and not just, you know, storybook princess. Uh, If you can integrate that information, then you encounter the old wise man as a man. Mm -hmm. That's like Dumbledore, Gandalf, or the figure of the wise king, or Mufasa after he dies and is in the clouds, or Zeus, uh, or God the Father, um, and so that this is an old wise man who wields thunderbolt or the the ability to be to make you awe struck um, strikes me as completely right. It's like the ultimate goal, which shapes you in the most focused and refining way. Um, and then the game, just that you remind me that we see the fire, the ice, and then the thunder like that. It um, well, it does seem to be open to that sort of interpretation, at least from amp- from an amplificatory, <laughs> from an amplification standpoint. Well, I'm not even gonna try that adjective. Kind <laughs> of <laughs> this time of night. <laughs> Gotta get that zone of proximal development going, man. No kidding. No kidding. Okay, yeah. All times a day. Uh, I live life in the zone of proximal development. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, for next time, I guess I need to get through the golden saucer. And do we want to get any farther than that? It. You know, get as far as you can in the prison thing, because that, I don't remember exactly how to do that. I think it's going to take me a little while to figure out what to do down in the prison. But I remember there were some dust worms or something that were pretty frustrating and tough to do. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you. Another good episode. Talk yeah, to you soon. always a pleasure. Bye. Uh,